This is chapter 22, and we're looking. We're coming to the end of our series this morning, a short series. If you'd like to order a copy, as Mark said, you can see Carolyn afterwards. But we've been talking about the blessing of Abraham because when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he spoke about the blessing of Abraham coming upon the Gentiles who believe in Jesus, and that's us. And that's why we've been looking at what the blessing of Abraham is, at least, you know, just scratching the surface, really. But this morning we're going to read from Genesis chapter 22. And it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Whew. That is heavy, friends. You know, in, in Abraham's life, there were, there were certain crossroads at, at his life where, where God asked him to be separated from something that was near and dear to him. For a start, God called him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees, where he was brought up, and asked him to go to a land that he would show him and give to him. And then, as you know, when he came into the land, there was that time when he had to separate from his nephew, Lot. And they went different directions. And then in the chapter before this one, we read that God asked Abraham to give up Ishmael. And, and, and Ishmael and his mother went from the household. And, and every time it was a painful experience. And sometimes there are those occasions in our lives as Christians when we know that God is asking us to give up something that's not helpful to us. You know, the Bible says all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Not all things are helpful. Amen. And, and the, the writer of the Hebrew says that we are to run with patience the race that is set before us, laying aside every sin, every weight and every sin that besets us. And it's like running a race. Sometimes there are, there are heavy weights upon us that we do well just to shed, just to put off, so that we can run better the race that God has given to us. And we understand all that. That's part and parcel of discipleship. But here, God is asking Abraham to give up the very thing that he promised him the son that he promised to give him now I wonder what was going through his mind you just you know, we were so familiar with this story but this is a dramatic thing and get into the mind of Abraham at this time you know he was probably thinking God has asked me to go and take my son and sacrifice him on a mountain that's what the pagan gods do they ask for human sacrifices. In fact, when God gave the promised land hundreds of years later to the children of Israel, that was the one sin that just was the straw that broke the camel's back. When the inhabitants of Israel offered up child sacrifices to the god Molech, God then sent his people in to cleanse the land and to, 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 to take the land. And this would be going through his mind. And, and what would he say to Sarah? Think about it. What would he say to Sarah? We're just going out for the day. I'm just offering up Isaac as a burnt offering on the mountain. 
Well, don't be home for late, late for lunch, will you? You know? I don't think you'd have said that. He probably didn't even tell him. The Bible says he rose early in the morning and snuck away. And then he would have been thinking, but all that God has promised me is in this boy. In fact, God's plan of salvation for the world is tied up in this seed. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Messiah would come through this line. And now God was asking him to offer him up. Not only offer him up, but to actually be the executioner. Now friends, I've got to tell you, I've read this many times and, and I've tried to justify it in my mind. I've tried to defend God as if God needs defending. But you know, I, I've got to say, friends, when I read this, in all honesty and transparency, there's a sense of outrage in my heart at this whole incident of what God was asking Abraham to do. In fact, if anyone wanted to attack the Bible or attack God or attack Christianity, that would be a good passage to start. Wouldn't you agree? What sort of God is that? So how do we, how do we explain it? I think there's a couple of things we have to say. First of all, you know, from Abraham's perspective, always let the Bible be the best interpreter of the Bible. And this passage is quoted by James. In fact, he says, you, you know, you say that you're justified by faith, but he spoke about being justified by works. And then he said, wasn't Abraham justified when he offered up Isaac? Wow, that's completely different to what Paul said, isn't it? Paul said that we're justified by faith, by believing in Jesus. James says we're justified by works. It's all the Bible, but it seems to contradict itself. But no, it doesn't contradict itself. They were talking about different things altogether. Abraham was talking, uh, sorry, Paul was talking about how a person is justified before God, made righteous in the sight of God. How are how we justified before God? By believing in Jesus Christ. That's very clear. Over and over and over and over, consistently, all the way through the New Testament, there is only one way to be righteous before God, and that is to believe that Jesus Christ has done it all on the cross for you. Amen. And Abraham did that. We read that back in Genesis 15. And he was declared to be righteous by God. He was regarded by God as righteous from that point on. God never saw him anything but righteous in his sight. So what is James referring to? Well, you know, there's faith and there's faith. Some people possess faith, others profess to have faith. You can say you have faith, but faith has to be tested. Amen? So he said, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So he's talking about what man sees, that we justify what we say about ourselves before others. Nothing to do with God. Justification before God. That was settled way back when. Only God knows those that believe in him. Amen? Only God knows, knows those that have faith in him. And God knew way back then that Abraham had faith in God. But in his outworking of that, there were a lot of question marks. And we looked at some of those last week. You know, he, he was very um, incomplete in his, in his obedience. 
He offered partial obedience, sometimes outright disobedience to God. And, uh, you know, there were times when he lied about his wife, said that she was his sister over and over again, put her in danger of being defiled by other men. Many times that's a serious thing. And he, he repeated that. Then there was the time when, when uh, they took their eyes off the promise and, and he tried to make everything happen by going into another woman and having another son. And then when God said to him, that son is not the heir, that's not the one that I promised, that's not the one through whom the blessing is going to come, he said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Why can't we make this my son? Why can't you make this the son that you... you he just did not exercise faith and trust in God. And so you look on and you look on and you look on and you think, is this man a believer? And now we come to this, this incredible test, which I would say would be the, the greatest test of faith anywhere in the Bible. Because, you know, the faith that you and I have that justifies us is our only link with God. And it's actually a faith that he has engineered. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Faith comes to us by believing. Faith comes to us by the word of God, I mean. Amen? Faith comes to us. God has granted us to have faith. And that faith is going to be all that we need. That faith in God is going to be all that we need for anything that we encounter in life. God knows that. He's the architect of our faith. But, you know, if an engineer designs something, say like a bridge, he can go to his drawing board, he can use all the laws of physics and so on, and know that that bridge will hold the greatest possible weight that, it, that, that, that will come upon it. And he can submit it to the government and say, this bridge is going to be okay. I know it. There's no doubt about it. It's going, to be, it's going to uphold the weight. But you know what? The government will still test it. It'll test it for the sake of the public that are going to use it. Amen? Now, faith is tested. In fact, we talk a lot in the Christian life about trials. There's actually only one trial. One trial. All those trials you can put up under this one heading, the Bible speaks about the trial of your faith. The trial of your faith being much more precious than gold. And here is Abraham who is the prototype of the man of faith, the person of faith, who is linked to God by his faith in the revealed word of God, which is Jesus himself. And all he's got is his faith, and God says that's going to be enough. It's going to be enough not only for him, but for the entire race of people who believe in Jesus. Friends, there's no situation that you will find yourself in where faith will not be sufficient. When you put your trust in God, that's all you need to do to trust God and experience His grace, His provision, His protection, His leading, His guidance, and so on in your life. And Abraham was put to the test 
for that very thing back there. But you know, I think there's another thing here that we see in this story that is so incredible. And, it, and it's this, you know, in, in Abraham's life, many things that are precious to us under the new covenant are found in Abraham. For example, we're talking about justification by faith. He is the model of it, isn't he? That Paul constantly brings him forth as the one who believed in the seed that, was come, that would come, Jesus, and was made righteous by God and regarded as righteous from that time forward and treated as righteous. And it's a picture for us that if we do the same, we too will be righteous in God's sight. Again, we see that Abraham had two wives, Sarah and Hagar, and they represent two different covenants. The covenant of promise and the covenant of law. And it's a picture of when we turn away from the promise of God, when we do not walk in the grace of God, we press the panic button like Abraham did, we get married to the law and it's the flesh and the flesh will fail us. Amen? And we see pictures like that in the life of Abraham. Well, here we see something that is not um, depicted anywhere else in the Old Testament. And it's this. This is one aspect of the gospel that this story brings out. You, you won't find it anywhere else. And that is that a father offered up his son. Amen. It's a picture. It's a picture. Because we know that God did not allow him to go through with it. But in type, it is a picture of the fact that God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. And everything about this, it's so obvious that it's a picture of the cross. God says to him, go to a mountain that I will show you, the mountain of Moriah. The word Moriah means to see or to be pointed out by the Lord. The mount that was pointed out by the Lord. That it could have been any mountain, couldn't it? No, God says it's got to be this mountain. Why this mountain? You know, later on in the scripture, um, David had committed a sin and there was a plague that broke out on Israel. And as this plague was spreading over the land, David saw the Lord. The Lord came to him and, and, and the Lord turned away the plague. And David bought that parcel of land where he met the Lord. And he built an altar there, and it was right here on Mount Moriah, and that was the spot where they built the temple of the Lord, Solomon's temple. And that was the, the, the place where later Jesus was crucified, pointed out by the Lord, Mount Moriah. God saw that place and took Abraham to that place and said, there, there, that place. The amazing thing is that as you read this passage, you'll find that Abraham and Isaac set out early in the morning and it says there are two servants that go with him. Two servants. Just as they're going up the hill, just as when, when Jesus was crucified, there were two thieves with him. One on one side and one on the other. Now, they went further than we could go. I don't know what it's like to be crucified. You don't know what it's like to be crucified. But they knew what it was like to be crucified. But 
Abraham says to them, now stay here and we will go. You stay here now, you come this far, but no further. So they went further than us. They know what crucifixion is like, but then the father and the son go up the hill together and it is something which they alone are going to experience. It's like God drew a curtain over what happened at the cross. What happened at the cross when the Father took your sin, my sin, the sin of the world, and laid it upon his Son to die in our place that we might be forgiven. Who can enter into what happened between the Father and the Son on the cross? Who can really comprehend it? It's like God just drew a veil over that. Said, you, you, you don't know. You won't know what went on between the Son and me at the cross. You stay there while we go up yonder. And then he said this, we will go and worship and we will come again. And yet Abraham was totally committed to obeying what God told him to do. In fact, his obedience is incredible. When God said to him, go and do this, not one word of arguing or reasoning or protesting. In fact, he got up early in the morning, the Bible says, to go. And you know the story, when he was about to plunge the knife into his son, God called out and stopped him. But friends, when God told him to go, he said, Abraham, he said, here am I. He only had to call him once to go. When he called him to stop doing what he'd asked him to do, he had to call him twice. He said, Abraham, Abraham, <laughs> totally committed to doing the will of God. And yet, he was able to say to these two men, we will go yonder and we will worship and we will come, we will come back to you. Amazing. See, he knew, he believed the promise that God was going to give him a son. He now given him that son. And through that son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he had such incredible 100% faith in what God had said to him that he thought, well, if God is asking me to sacrifice him, then he's going to raise him up from the dead and bring him back. And that's exactly what he believed. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. That's interesting, by the way, isn't it? Because he did have another son. But that son was not acknowledged by God in the purposes of God for worldwide redemption. In fact, God said to him, take your son, your only son. That's interesting, isn't it? What about Ishmael? He was never a part of what God was going to do in terms of worldwide redemption. Your only begotten son of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Incredible faith. There was not even one example of a resurrection up until this point. God hadn't raised anybody from the dead. 
And yet he had 100% faith. If God has asked me to go and sacrifice him, I will obey him. It's not my problem. God has promised that through him, all the nation's going to be blessed. So then he must raise him from the dead. And he said, we'll come back to you. <laughs> Don't you find that incredible? And as they go up the hill, the Bible says that he lays the wood for the burnt offering on the back of his son. Wonderful picture. I mean, his son would be lying on that wood on the altar as he was being offered up. It was a picture of the cross being laid upon Jesus as he went to the cross. You remember that? He bore his own cross up the hill. And uh, Isaac said, Father, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? Just listen very carefully to the words of Abraham. God will provide himself a lamb. Isn't that beautiful? God will provide himself a lamb. You've heard me share that, that, that there's a lot of people that are evangelicals, even grace preachers today, that are now throwing doubt on why Jesus died on the cross. They're saying that God did not demand a sin sacrifice. That it was just what man did to Jesus. He had nothing to do with God satisfying the justice of God. That's not what the Bible consistently teaches all the way through. God will provide himself, himself a lamb. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. He was the one that appeased the wrath of God. The wrath that was due to you and me because of our sin fell upon him. In the day that you eat the fruit, you will die. Sin demands the forfeiture of life, but God accepts a substitute. But that substitute must be without sin, without spot. There was only one that could take the place. God provided himself a sacrifice. The, sacrifice that, the, the salvation that we have is not something that we have done or can do. God has provided it himself. And if God has provided it himself, then it must be sufficient. Amen? In fact, he is called, after, at the end of this, I think it's in verse 14, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. It's amazing that a lot of people use that in terms of money. <laughs> He's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. Now, of course, he that spared not his only son, but delivered him up from us all, he will meet all our needs. Amen? With him, he'll meet all our needs. But the prime meaning of Jehovah Jireh is that the Lord has provided himself a lamb. And yet, we know that as he was about to sacrifice Isaac and God intervened and stopped him, the test was over, he saw a ram caught in a thicket. In other words, caught up with thorns and thistles in his head. Another picture of Christ who bore the, the crown of thorns and thistles. But it was a ram, not a lamb. So the world is still waiting for the lamb. And when Jesus came, he said, behold, the lamb. John said, behold, the lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now... You know something about this passage? 
I, I'm a great believer in the law of first mention, meaning that the, the first time a subject is mentioned in the Bible, look very carefully at that context because it will give you some understanding about that theme. And you know the first time that love is mentioned in the Bible is in this passage. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. We will never understand love until we understand love at its fountain, at its source. God is love. Amen? God is love. So all that God is, he always has been. God didn't start to become love. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. All that he is, he always has been. Now, love must have an object. You can't love in a vacuum. Amen? That's why we believe in a trinity, a plurality in the Godhead. From eternity, there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. One God, three persons. Amen? Let us make man in our image. Plurality. And, and love, the eternal love of God existed within the Godhead. The love that the Father had for the Son and the Son for the Father is eternal. It had no beginning, it has no ending. And, and it is the source of all love. In fact, you can read about it, for example, in the book of Proverbs, where Jesus is uh, depicted as wisdom, the personification of wisdom. And he says, I was with him, that's God, from before the beginning. I was daily his delight. The Father daily delighted in the Son. And he said, I rejoice before him. The Son rejoiced before the Father. This incredible love between the Father and the Son, they were perfectly complete in their love for one another. God didn't need to create us in order to experience love. Amen? It didn't meet a need in his life. <laughs> we don't meet a need in God's life. He's complete. So for eternity, forever and ever, God would have been completely satisfied in the love that was in the Godhead. And any love that we experience in, on this earth, any kind of love, has flowed to us from God. Every love in every kind of creature has come down from God. God is love. Amen. Now here is the incredible thing. Let me just move on here. Let's move on. John says, in this is love. Not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is incredible. If, we, if the Holy Spirit helps us to get a revelation of what John is saying here, it will blow our minds away and it will transform us like nothing else can. 
This is the love of God. God is love, and that love is defined in the love between the Father and the Son, and yet God took his Son and gave him for us upon the cross to die that wicked, cruel, painful death to become the propitiation, the appeasement of his own wrath against our sin, herein is love. If ever you doubt that God loves you, this should put it to rest. Amen? If ever you struggle with lack of self-esteem, <laughs> here's where to go. Here's where to go. Don't do a, you know, a psychological course or something like that, friends. Here it is. You can't get any great, greater esteem than the esteem that God has given you, the value that he's put upon you, the worth that he's put upon you. In fact, it's so incredible that when Jesus prayed his prayer in John chapter 17, he said, Father, I pray that, that they might know that you have loved them as you have loved me. Wow. No wonder Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor heaven nor hell, principalities or powers or angels or demons, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, often it's, it's incredible. The number of people that are contacting me and asking me, what do you think about eternal security? Can you lose your salvation? But you know, the problem is it degenerates into like a theological argument. People banding verses about. Friends, unless you get the revelation of it, there's no point in arguing with people. All I can say is with Paul, I am persuaded. I'm, that, I've dealt with that issue. It's not an issue to me. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ. Do I really believe that God would do all this for me and then some stupid thing that I could do would just negate this love for me so that God thinks, oh no, he blew it. <laughs> Go to hell. <laughs> next, next. Come on, friends. The love of God. Let's get a revelation. Ask the Holy Spirit to give us a revelation. Herein is love. Not that we love God. You love God? You sure you love God? Because if you don't love him enough, he'll spew you out of his mouth. <laughs> we, we hear preachers, it's here in his love, not that we love God. Like we were saying earlier on, it's not that I'm faithful to God. I'm not going to stand up and say, I've been faithful to you all my life. I've not been faithful to God all my life. Neither of you, if you're honest. There have been times when we've failed him, we've let him down. But it's not about us, it's about him. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's move on. I want to move on. See, I started by saying that I was outraged by the fact that God asked a father to give up his son. But you see, this is outrageous love. You, you cannot explain it any other way. In fact, some people dismiss it because they try to reason it in their minds. They say, would God you know, allow his own son to suffer upon the cross. They try to reason it. They get into human philosophy. Not the revelation of God's word, but human reason. 
This is outrageous love. That a father would sacrifice his own son? It is. It's outrageous, friends. There's no other word for it. It's outrageous love. Amen? Now let's go on quickly because our time is really racing along, but there is a point I want to finish up with here because our theme is the blessings of Abraham. This is the source of it. This is the source of it. But let's go to chapter 23. Sarah, chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Okay, so we're looking now about, uh, probably about 30 years or 40 years later after what happened there. No, sorry, no, sorry, it's not that, not, not that long. Okay, anyway, she's 127. I think Abraham will be about 137. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It's the only time we hear of Abraham weeping. Beautiful. These two had been together through thick and thin, through good and bad, through obedience and disobedience. And that, you know, you know it's like when somebody loses a loved one, they, the memories pour in like a string of pearls. And he was just looking back over his life, weeping over Sarah. But then it says this in verse 3, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead. So even, even the worst experience, the most sorrowful experiences, God enables us to stand up. What is it that enables us to stand up? Let's read on. And he spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. In other words, I'm a pilgrim. See, we, we need to remind ourselves, friends, that we are pilgrims. Amen. He says, give me a property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Abraham is a pilgrim. So much so that he does not own one piece of real estate on earth. He hasn't even got a grave to bury his wife in at the end of his life. And so this is the first and only time of him buying any real estate. And he's just got this little patch of land, this burial ground, which he buries Sarah in, and later he was buried in, and Isaac was buried there, and Jacob was buried there, and Rebecca, uh, Rachel was buried there, and Leah was buried there, all in that same grave. And that's all he owned on the earth. Because you'll notice in Genesis 12, verse 7, we haven't got time, but if you look back there, you'll notice that when God comes to him and promises him the land of Canaan, he doesn't actually promise it to him. God never promised it to him, but to his descendants. And so we read that for three generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, None of them lived in a city. None of them lived in a house. None of them lived in a dwelling place. They lived in tents. A symbol of someone who is a pilgrim. Someone who knows this world is not their, their own. Now, we've been talking, friends, about the blessings of Abraham. And I think I've made it very, very clear over the last three weeks that God has blessed us incredibly. 
God is not, we're not cursed, we are blessed. You can't be cursed and blessed at the same time. We are blessed spiritually, we are blessed circumstantially, we are blessed materially, we are blessed physically. Amen? We are blessed. Abraham was so blessed he was almost tripping over his blessings. Amen? So here's the thing. Our blessing is not our inheritance. He didn't take these blessings and work out how to amass incredible real estate to lay up his treasure on earth. Can you see what I'm saying? He walked in the blessing of God. Everything he needed was supplied by God. He had abundance. And everything you need, God will supply. And if you believe him, he'll also give you beyond that. He'll give you something with which you can serve God. Amen. Some seeds to sow in this earth because he wants you to partner with him and to be involved with him in what he's doing in the earth. We're sons of God. We care about our Father's business. Amen? You know, grace doesn't make us lazy and selfish and self-indulgent. But all the time he knew that what he had was only a foretaste of what was to come. And what was to come, his real inheritance was not in this world, but in the world to come. Let's just read a couple of verses here concerning our inheritance. That God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now there's a reason for saying that our inheritance is incorruptible. And we'll look at that in just a moment. It says here, the promise that he, that is Abraham, would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed, that is us. We are the seed of Abraham. We are, the meek will inherit the earth one day. Amen. We're destined to reign with Christ. We've got a glorious inheritance, friend. Didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, let's look at this. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He said, I am not going to turn my blessings into earthly assets and call that my inheritance. He got, his, he got perspective here, friends, concerning the blessings of God. Because Jesus said this, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust can corrupt and where thieves can break in and steal. Now, Abraham is always compared with Lot because Abraham is a, a type of the spiritual believer. Lot is a type of the carnal believer. Amen? And Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw opportunity to get rich and to have assets. And he moved into the city of Sodom. What did he discover there? 
that thieves can break in and steal. <laughs> Is that right? Not only steal what he had, but steal him as well. Remember the kings that came against Sodom and took the whole lot away. And then eventually, that city that he lived for was burned down, was destroyed by God. Because he was blessed, but he turned his blessings into earthly assets and he had no sense of vision for the inheritance that God had for him. Whereas Abraham sought for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now come again to the, the law of first mention. The first city that we read of is in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 17. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bought Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So the foundations of that city was selfish ambition. He wanted to perpetuate a name for himself. So he built a city that would bring glory to him. It had his name on it. It had the name of his son on it. His family name there. Okay? Later on we see that the flood came and then after the flood, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. But they all stayed in one place and they said, what? Let us build ourselves a city. Selfish ambition again. And a tower whose top is in heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And you see the spiritual principle here, friends. He that saves his life will lose it. You build a name for yourself in this life, you try to build your inheritance in this life, you will lose it. There are, there's coming a time when the things that can be shaken will be shaken, so that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Amen? Now we've been brought into the family of God, we've been involved in his purposes, and he's included us in what he's doing in the earth. And it all centers around the seed. Making people know about Jesus. The only way that you can be righteous before God. This is what we read about the city that Abraham believed in. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. He sought for a city that had foundations. The 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Praise God. Jesus called those 12 apostles and sent them to lay the foundation for the church. He taught them. And the Bible says that we're built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Some people think that we're built on apostles. No, we're not. It means we're built on the, the foundations that the apostles laid. You can read about those in the epistles. And for those that don't know, an epistle is not a wife of an apostle. Okay? The epistles were written by the apostles. Just a little bit of teaching here. So the church is built upon the foundation that the apostles uh, uh, laid, which is... No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Amen. So this city, at last John sees it coming down from heaven. And you read that actually the, the city has 12 gates. 
three face the east, three face the west, three face the north, and three facing south. Because God said to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The city is pointing out in every direction. And, and friends, God has called us to partner with him and to be involved with him in his purpose. Let's not get self-centered. Let's not lose focus. And even though you're going to get blessed out of your socks, friends, as a believer because of the righteousness of God, don't turn your blessings into earthly assets so that you amass great wealth here on earth because moth and rust will corrupt and thieves will break through and steal. I heard a story about a man who had a incredible wealth and he died and, and at the funeral as the music was quietly playing waiting for the service to start somebody just leaned across to his friend and said how much did he leave and his friend said everything <laughs> now that's okay for an unbeliever but friends we are in a different economy as the people of god amen Jesus said, do business till I come. Occupy till I come. Be a good steward of what God has given you. I believe, you know, as, as Christian parents, we, the, Paul says actually that the parents do lay up for their children. Leave an inheritance for your children. But friends, don't amass great wealth and then just die with millions in the bank or in assets. We're a part of the family of God. Amen? Get involved with God in what God is doing in the earth, in building his kingdom. The blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham is so rich. But there's something even greater than the blessing of Abraham. And it's the inheritance that God has prepared for us, which is incorruptible, undefiled, and will never fade away. Moth and rust will not corrupt. Thieves will not break through and steal reserved in heaven for you let's pray together father we thank you this this morning for this great life that you've put before us as an example we've seen abraham as a believer warts and all lord a man who stumbled and fell at times a man who took his eyes off the promise and a man who even sowed to the flesh and reaped corruption as he did so and yet all the time he kept coming back to the promise coming back, Lord God, to the seed and fixing his eyes upon the promise that would come. And Lord, we thank you that in the end, his faith was un, unwavering. Lord, it was so strong that even when you asked him to offer up his son, he knew that you'd raise him up again because he knew you'd do what you promised to do. And you have, Lord, you've given us the seed the Son, the Saviour. And Lord, he has been a blessing to the nations of the earth. Lord, in these last days of time, as this age closes down, we just pray that in the time frame that you've given to us, we will know what you want us to do with our lives, how we can partner with you, Lord God, to be a blessing to this world, to this generation, by taking the gospel to our nation and to the nations of the world. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.